form of the entire Bible, even though it's in the Bible. And, and because of how it's structured, a uh, couple important numbers is that there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters. There's also 66 books in the entire Bible. And it's interesting how it breaks down. We've been talking about how the first uh, 39 chapters you might call first Isaiah. The first 39 chapters have to do with Isaiah talking about uh, the, God's people, their covenant with God, the broken covenant, and the oncoming judgment that is in the form of the Assyrians. And so the first 39 chapters is kind of dealing with this broken covenant, this language of broken covenant, and then the consequences of that. The first uh, 39 chapters you might call first Isaiah, and then there seems to be like a break. But what's interesting is in the Old Testament, there's 39 books that have to do with the Old Covenant. Uh, at chapter 39, there seems to be this break in Isaiah. A lot of time goes by, and when it picks back up in Isaiah 40, what we find is that God's people are out of exile, and they've returned to the promised land, and they're trying to rebuild their lives. And for the next 27 chapters, it deals with this idea of God's grace and this hopeful expectation of what God is going to do in the present and in the future for his people. Just so happens that the New Testament has 27 books that deal with God's grace and God's hopeful expectations for the future. I don't know if they did that on purpose. It's one of those things that you're like, it, that is just fascinating. It's almost like it's divinely inspired, right? There's something interesting going on here. This book, as we've talked about, uh, Jesus, Jesus quotes it in his first sermon. We find that the story in Acts chapter 8, when Philip runs into the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian's reading from Isaiah. John the Baptist starts his ministry proclaiming the words of Isaiah. It's an important book. Isaiah is writing about the hopeful expectations for God's people. In every generation that, that comes to this book, these words are meant for them. There's something happening that God is doing in the life, in our lives and in the life of his people. The hopeful expectations. This place is going somewhere. God is up to something and he's doing something through us. First week, we talked about this idea that uh, in Isaiah, these hopeful expectations entail God bringing in rivers and streams into a desert, and he's going to be doing something new, and he's going to be bringing life to a place uh, that has no life, and it's going to be miraculous. And are you open to this new thing happening where God is pouring life into this place where no life can exist? Last week, we talked about this idea that when God moves and when he does something that feels miraculous, it's going to be such an amazing witness for everyone to see. And they'll know that this only happened because God did it. God was with his people. God did something that only could be attributed to God. And as a church, as we are, are talking about our future and our hopes, we want to be a place where the souls of people in this community just have life poured into them and they receive hope. And we want this corporately as a church to be a place where we're meeting here in this middle school, but we're hoping that we become a permanent fixture in this community. And as we think about our next steps, we realize it's going to have to be something that God does that feels like only God can do it. But we believe he will. We have these hopeful expectations that what God is doing here in this cafeteria, God will continue to do 
through us in this community. We have these hopeful expectations. Today I want to look at uh, the hopeful expectations found in Isaiah chapter 43. And so much of Isaiah's writing is poetry, and so it kind of breaks down like a poem. But here are the words in Isaiah 43 that you can read with me. Starting in verse 1, it says, But now, this is what the Lord says. So Isaiah's writing, and now God is talking. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid for I am with you. It's, a, it's poetic language, but it's beautiful, and it's communicating something about what God thinks about his people. Isaiah, as he writes this poem, and he thinks about how God is bringing hope to people who have none, I would say just kind of the summary of this section would say that God is saying this to his people, I will continue with you in difficult places. That's kind of the, the gist of this poem. God's saying, I will continue with you. I know what you've gone through. I know that you've gone into exile. I know that you've lost everything. I know that you've had everything devastated. And now you have come back to this place, and you are starting from scratch, and you have nothing. But I will be with you as I have been with you in the past. I will continue to be with you in difficult places. And there's this beautiful imagery of, of what that looks like. Isaiah wants us to notice a few things about the character of God in this passage. The first is this, is that he wants us to notice God's redemption in this passage. God's redemption is on display here. And here's, here's why. It says, but now this is what the Lord says in verse 1. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. I mean, that kind of sounds redundant, right? Created and formed and Jacob and Israel. And is he talking about one person or a group of people? But it's interesting, this idea of created reminds us that from the very beginning, the very beginning of our story, we believe that, that humans are created in the image of God. That there's something unique about us as humans. God creates us in his image. Yes, we're created. And then there's this word formed. It's, just, it's a different idea than the creation. Formed means something that has been created all of a sudden has been molded and shaped. But what's going on here? And then you have Jacob. You have Jacob, and then you have Israel. What's interesting about that is it's, if it's a group of people, it's talking about God's people, but if it's just an individual, it's the same person. Jacob, in his story, he became Israel. Here we have uh, the story of Jacob and his twin brother Esau. Some of you know, some of you grew up hearing the story, right? They're uh, born back-to-back Literally, Jacob's like holding on to the heel of his brother as he comes out of the womb. I have no idea what that would be like, but this is what the story says. Um, and we find that Jacob's character is questionable. In fact, he's kind of like a con artist. He actually tricks his brother Esau, who's born first, out of his birthright. Uh, I uh, finished seminary 
couple years ago, and when one of the, the big projects I worked on in Old Testament class uh, was we were supposed to write an exegetical paper about a fascinating character in the Old Testament. And I, I chose Jacob. And my, my professor, my instructor at Fuller, uh, this real prestigious uh, instructor I was like super intimidated by, called me in uh, after class and said, I've, I've been reading through these proposals for the papers. Why in the world did you choose Jacob? And I'm like, oh, is that bad? <laughs> and he goes, he's my least favorite patriarch. There's, there's nothing good. About, if you read through Jacob, you're just going to be so frustrated. And God keeps bailing him out. Like, you want to, like, you're just, you're going you're gonna to get into Jacob's story, and he's like, I just, I don't like him. I was like, okay. <laughs> so then it was like a challenge. I was like, well, I'm going to find the redeeming qualities of Jacob, right? I'm going to write about this and, and figure it out. And do you know what I found? He's a stinker. He's slimy. And, like, I was reading through, I was like, this is, oh, this is why, like, and, and God keeps bailing him out. But if you read the story of Jacob throughout kind of the Old Testament and how he keeps coming back, what you realize is that it's not a story about Jacob. It's a story about God's goodness and grace and faithfulness and how he hangs with a person who keeps screwing up. Like us. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. God continues to, to hang with them. And here it says, God created you, Jacob, and formed you, Israel. And when you know this story of Jacob, when you understand what he does to others and how God doesn't give up on him, and finally, like later in life, when he's coming back home, he has this moment where he's about to cross over this river and get back into home, and an angel of the Lord appears to him, and they have this wrestling match. It says they struggle together. And after they emerge from this match, Jacob is walking with a limp. He's been injured, and he'll never be the same. And yet at the same time, he's given this new identity. He's given this new name, Israel, because he has wrestled with God. And he has experienced God in such a personal way that it's changed him forever. And when Isaiah is talking about these hopeful expectations for his people, he says, this is the God who speaks to you, the God who created you, but the God that formed you and gave you a new name. The story that we have as God's people is that, like Jacob, we're screwed up. Like Jacob, we, we do all sorts of things that we regret. Like Jacob, we have terrible things that happen to us, and we have to respond. And yet God, in his goodness, walks with us, forms us, and gives us a new identity. In the New Testament, they had this understanding that while we were sinners, God loved us. This is the story that Jesus moves into our broken, in the broken places of this world, our broken stories, and does something about it. And it forms us with this new identity, and it makes us new. God is the one who created us. God's redemption is on display in this passage. It's, it's a simple phrase, created you, Jacob, formed you, Israel, but it would have meant so much more. Oh, this is the God of redemption who is speaking to us. And then it says that he's the one who comforted. He creates them and he comforts them. He says, do not fear. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. We have this comfort in not our own story, our own things that happen to us, the things that we do. We have comfort in God who hangs with people like Jacob and makes them new again. 
God created us, God comforted us. And then in verse 1, we also find is that God is the one who claims us. It says, I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. Isaiah wants us to know, he wants us to notice that, that the God who is speaking to us is the God of redemption. Here's what wants us to notice as well. The God of redemption also his resolution. God's resolution is on display. God has this resolution for us in this passage. There's a promise here. When we think about our resolutions, uh, we always go to like New Year's. I don't know how many people made resolutions this year. Um, I've heard people joke it goes in, in one year and out the other when you make resolutions. Um, when God makes a resolution, he follows through and does it. This is a promise. And here's what the promise is. This, this language is just, uh, it's so powerful. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. His resolution involves his presence in the time of trial. Two images that he uses here. One is water. One is fire. When you think about what water does, water overwhelms. It overwhelms and it drowns. Fire consumes. Fire absolutely consumes. For us in, in Phoenix, we don't really, you know, we're not around water very often. We don't really see flooding like you might see in the Midwest or if you're on the coast. Um, every now and then we get like the 100-year flood and all the homes that we've built here just get flooded and there's no flooding insurance and all that. But we don't really kind of see necessarily the power of water. We forget water is what makes the Grand Canyon, right? Water is powerful. And it's something that can completely overwhelm. And I think that they, he's using this imagery. When you pass through the waters, when you pass through the rivers, God will be with you. The things in life that feel absolutely overwhelming, God is with you in the midst of it. His presence is with you. It doesn't say, here's what God says, you're never going to pass through the waters. The waters will never come. They will never be overwhelming. No, he says, when it happens, when you experience those things in life that are so overwhelming that you feel like you are drowning, I will be with you. And when this river that feels like it's rushing, that it would just sweep you away, I will be with you and you'll make it through. You're not going to get swept away. You're not going to be overwhelmed. You're not going to be consumed. As with the fire, you're not going to burn up. It's interesting that 1 Peter 4.12 says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You're going through something difficult that feels overwhelming, that feels consuming. Here Peter's saying, don't think that something strange is happening to you. This is life. When you pass through the waters, God will be with you. When you are in the fire, you will not be consumed. God promises his presence in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our storm, in the midst of the things that we go through. Peter says, we all go through it. Last night I was shocked, absolutely shocked, when Andrew Luck announced his retirement. 
Andrew Luck is one of my favorite football players. Uh, I went to school in Indiana, so if I'm an AFC team, I like the Colts. Uh, quarterback, great quarterback, fun to watch. And he retired at the age of 29 years old. And the first response is, what is he thinking? He has like, Tom Brady's playing until he's like 45. Like, how is Andrew Luck? And I, I, I heard that and I thought, what in the world? Like, why, in the, why would he be retiring now? And you kind of, like, there's this, you know, like the Twitter world goes crazy. Everyone's upset. Everyone's trying to figure out. And then you hear him talk and you forget what Andrew Luck has gone through. I, I read this list of injuries and it was like lacerated kidney, uh, torn rotator cuff, um, broke cartilage in his ribs or something. And like he's gone through time and time again where his body has just taken a beating and he's finally at a point where he's like, I, I've had enough. I'm done. He walked away from almost $60 million because he wants to walk again. <laughs> he had just had enough. He's got fame, wealth, success, and he's like, my life is it's miserable. There's no joy in this. I'm done. Even people who get everything, who've made everything, who've accomplished everything, and there's this great suffering trials. Peter says, it's not strange. You're going to go through the waters. You're going to feel overwhelmed. You're going to go through the fire. You're going to feel like you're about to be consumed. Life is relentless. It's exhausting. It's painful. Don't think that it's going to be strange. But the resolution of God here, the promise of God is his presence with us in the midst of whatever we're going through. That we won't be overwhelmed. That we won't be consumed. There's a steadiness that happens. I, I, I think it's interesting, this imagery of going through the water. But then it says, when you walk through the fire. I, I got to that word walk and I was like, who walks through a fire? You, you would run through the fire. Walking through the fire, there's, there's something here about the steadiness of when we go through the midst of suffering, through things that consume us, God is with us in the midst of it. It's not something we just can get through quickly. We move through the suffering with a steadiness because God is with us. The steadiness of his presence. He promises his presence that we are not overwhelmed, that we cannot be consumed. Isaiah wants us to notice the redemption of God, the resolution of God, and then finally here, the reassurance of God. The reassurance of God. He says this in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba for in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. There's this reassurance. The people are reassured. There's this lofty and powerful name of God that is holy and pure. This is the God that is with us. God is with us, and this gives us assurance. He knows us, he claims us, he calls us by name. And then he says that we are precious. Precious. I think this is an interesting word. If you're like me, the word precious has been ruined because of Lord of the Rings. 
Right? Every time I hear that word, I think of Gollum, I think of the ring, I think of that voice. But something that's precious, something that is to be cared for, protected, watched over. Isaiah is saying, this is what God is saying about us, that we are precious to him. That we are worth saving, worth redeeming, worth loving. This is describing something about the character of God that he doesn't just, he's not just sovereign over us. He doesn't just say that he, he, yes, he loves us. He says that we are precious to him. There's something powerful here to know where we stand in his sight. He loves us this much. There's an old uh, story that an old Presbyterian pastor used to tell. And uh, it's about this English family that experienced a fire. It was a young family that had kids, and they had a newborn baby. And when the fire came, they all rushed outside, and the mom realized that her baby was still inside. So she ran back into the house in this frantic panic, screaming to save her daughter. Goes up to the daughter's room. The baby's there in the crib. And the flames are kind of closing in around her. She looks back, doesn't want to take the baby back through the track that she came because of how hot it was. So she looks out the window, realizes her husband's down there, and she drops the baby from the, the window on the second floor down to the husband to catch it. And then she decides, it's too far for me to jump. So she tries to run back into the house and get out. She gets to the hallway. The hallway's collapsed. The fire is consuming. And she goes back out to the window and decides to climb down. At this point, there's no one there. They're looking for her at the front door. The flames are unbearable. She starts to climb down. And as she does, the building is so hot that she just burns her hands on the windowsill, starts to climb down. It rips her hands apart. But she gets out. She's safe. The baby's saved. The family's saved. The mom is saved. But her hands are ruined. As the baby got older, became a child, uh, one thing they she found is that her mom always wore gloves, would never take the gloves off. And as the baby was older, would start asking questions, as children do, why do you always wear gloves? The mom would never really say until she felt like the child was old enough. And one day when the child was old enough, she came into the room with the mom. She had her gloves off. And the child started asking, what, what's wrong with your hands? And the mom started to tell the story. She said, you're finally old enough to know, and I want you to know, that we had a fire when you were a baby, that we thought we were going to lose you. I ran back into the house, dropped you from the window. And as I tried to get out, I tried to climb down the window, and my hands were torn and burned and destroyed. And the doctors tried to do something about it, and they couldn't. And now I have... This disfigured hands. But that's okay. I did it for you. And I would do it again. And the daughter, finally old enough to realize why her mom had worn gloves all this time to cover up these deformed hands that had been deformed because of her love for her. All of a sudden, it made sense. And she just looked at her mom's hands. And she just buried her face in her mom's hands with unbelievable gratitude at the sacrifice her mom made because she was loved and precious. She said, your hands are beautiful to me. Just wept in her hands. This is the story of loving something that is precious 
that you're willing to sacrifice something to bring about saving of that person. The old Presbyterian pastor says, this is how God loves us. This is the story of God. That he not only loves us so much that he would save us from the fire, that he would go through the fire himself. The story of the cross is that Jesus came into the world and suffered on the cross, absorbing our sin, absorbing the consequences of our brokenness, deformed so that we may have life. This story is a story of God's great love for us. Isaiah says, this is the reassurance that we have. God loves us so much. We are precious in his sight. He will do anything to keep us alive and to save us. There's salvation here. The redemption of God that takes us as just created figures and forms us into a new identity. The resolution of God that says, no matter what you go through, fire, overwhelming floods, you will not be consumed for I will be with you. And God says, you are so precious to me, I will do anything I can so that you can have life eternal with me. This is the God in Isaiah that Isaiah is communicating. We are a people who are deeply and profoundly loved, even though we don't deserve it. We are a people that should deeply and profoundly love others. This is the community of God. Today we're going to close with a time of communion. Tim's going to come back up. and For communion for us, this represents this story of God's love for us. That we are so precious to him that he comes into this world as a human. That he lives among us, that he goes to the cross. His body is mutilated. His body is broken open on the cross so that we may be put back together and have life. We come to the table and we take a couple things that represent the story. And we do this out of remembrance for who God is and what he's done for us. We take a piece of bread and we break it open. And it represents God's body broken on the cross. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. And we do this out of remembrance of what God has done for us. But then we proclaim it. We are a people that are redeemed, a people who are loved. And we proclaim it to say, and we want this story to be told and proclaimed everywhere so people know they are precious in God's sight. We come to the table today. Maybe, maybe we come to the table and we haven't come in a long time. And we need to come almost like this daughter to her mom, weeping to the deformed hands of our Savior, saying thank you. Maybe we've never come to those hands before. And we invite you to the table today to receive this life that is eternal. And maybe today we come to the table and we're just carrying around a lot. We're going through life experiences that feel like we were being consumed. It feels like we're, being, we're in a fire. We feel like we're drowning. We feel like we are overwhelmed. We feel like we're about to be swept away. And we need to come to the table and say, these resolutions, God, that you are with me. I need that strength today. And maybe we come to the table and we know I've been created by God and I need to be formed into a new identity. Lord, transform my heart to be more like you. 
to be more like the person that you've called me to be. I'm not sure where you're at today, but as you come to the table today, think of your coming to the hands that have been torn and burned for you. And let's rest at the Savior's feet. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this, this old poem that reminds us of your goodness. Lord, we're grateful for the story of your love that's found throughout Scripture. And we're reminded of your love for us today. That you've created and formed us, that you have redeemed us. That you are with us when we pass through the waters. That you sustain us in a rushing river. That you protect us from an all consuming fire. You promise your presence in the midst of everything that we go through in this life. That you reassure us with your presence, Lord. That we are loved by you. That you've paid a price for us. We're grateful. And today, Lord, we just ask that you would meet us here. That we would encounter this presence that brings salvation. We encounter this presence that brings healing and hope. Lord, for the areas of our soul that feel dry and weary, like a wasteland, Lord, that you would just pour life like a flowing river into us. For the things in our life, Lord, that feel hopeless and broken, Lord, that you would do something that would be so miraculous that people would know that it was you. You'd give us breakthrough. And Lord, that you would remind us that you will continue to be with us in difficult circumstances. May we experience your peace today, Lord, at the table. May we experience the joy of our salvation. We give you this time, Lord. We invite you to move among us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.